You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's just that note of public alarm that's unmistakable. A man riding through town saying, You people are all doomed at the top of his lungs. You'll all pay a price. That's what happens in Pittsburgh in the 1790s. And people there were scared about what was going to come. And they may not have thought that they were participating in a future debate about concurrent powers under the Constitution. But they were. We'll talk a bit about the Whiskey Rebellion. But first, let's talk about federal power, state power, and ICE. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. As I'm recording this, it's a hot time in many parts of the country, and so it might help us to be sympathetic to the point of view of Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis in a particular decision, um, and to be sympathetic with the people of Oklahoma in 20s and 30s, and they are very concerned about ICE. It's needed to keep homes cool. More importantly, it's needed to keep food supplies cold enough. This guy Liebman starts selling ice in Oklahoma City cheaply and undercutting the company that's licensed by the State Ice Commission and has a license to sell it in Oklahoma City. Ostensibly, maybe this is a good thing. We want competition. We want cheap prices. But the Oklahoma legislature, like many legislatures in the teens and 20s, are starting to see how that goes. You have a competitor that appears for a while, lowers prices dramatically, puts the other out of business, and then raises them sky high. So Oklahoma developed a structure of regulation. The court throws it out. It's burdensome. How can you say that ice is a public commodity? You have no right to challenge what Lieben's doing with his property and his right to conduct commerce. In Justice Louis Brandeis's disagreement, which he gets one justice along with him, so he's dissenting, he's not the winner in this SCOTUS court case. To stay experimentation in things social and economic is a grave responsibility. Denial of the right to experiment may be fraught with serious consequences to the nation. It's one of the happy incidents of the federal system that a single courageous state may, if its citizens choose, serve as laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. This court has the power to prevent an experiment. We may strike down the statute, which embodies it, on the ground that, in our opinion, the measure is arbitrary, capricious, or unreasonable. We have the power to do this. 
because the due process clause has been held by the court as applicable to matters of substantive law as well as to matters of procedure. But in the exercise of this high power, we must be ever on our guard lest we erect our prejudices into legal principles. If we would guide by the light of reason, we must let our minds be bold. This becomes a concept, the idea of states as laboratories of democracy, as as places where you can try things. It all stems way back to how the country is structured under the Constitution. And a lot of people will say, oh, that's gone now. And that's really not. States have incredible powers concurrently in the same territory that the United States is in. There's two sets of laws, at least, that govern. There's actually more. You have county and uh, you have town laws in some cases. There's the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, which provides that all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. So, things like property taxes, police powers, schooling, right? Not, not the support of schooling financially. The federal government's heavily involved in that, but schooling day to day. 50, really 51 and more when you start getting into territories, semi-autonomous states where you can enact policies and test things at a state level without affecting the entire country, like Brandeis said. They can even turn into rules that Congress might adopt later. The Massachusetts Reform Act that Governor Romney and his legislature establishes in 2006 becomes a basis for the Affordable Care Act known as Obamacare uh, federally. That's just one thing. And what has really ruined the way that states' rights rings in the ear is the anti-civil rights movement, where senators from the South complaining about the Brown versus the Board of Education decision were complaining about the loss of states' rights. You know, in some ways, it's an odd concept because I'm not entirely sure states have rights as much as they have powers. And to me, it's the, the use of the term states' rights was a way of playing off civil rights or human rights um, and that, well, the state has rights too, but it's not really rights, at least as described in any of the founding documents. It's powers. If we go back to a couple of um, founding situations – one would be the Federalist Papers. Now, you you know, I am, I'm a little mixed about Federalist Papers, but I'm still going to cite this example of Hamilton. Because the, the, there are some um, arguments to be made about the, found, uh, the Federalist Papers in the way they're used today as just the explanation of the Constitution. There were many states that already approved the Constitution before Federalist Paper was released. And others, it's, it's questionable whether people that were ratifying the Constitution and states read any of these. But certainly in New York, Hamilton Jefferson and John Jay write a series of papers. Hamilton writes most of them. Um, it's one explanation. An entire consolidation of the states into one complete national sovereignty would imply an entire subordination of the parts. And whatever powers might remain in them would altogether be dependent on the general will. But the plan of the convention, what we plan to do, he's saying, aims only at a partial union or a consolidation. The states' governments would clearly retain all the rights of sovereignty, which they before had, and which were not, by that act, exclusively delegated to the United States. 
to the extent, and you know, I have my questions about the Federalist Papers, but I will say at least in the debates in the state of New York, a very important state of ratifying the Constitution, the Federalist Papers have some sway. An interpretation of the Constitution that might not be Alexander Hamilton's in his head or what he wanted in Philadelphia in 1787 when he spoke, he wanted a more nationalist government, to be sure. Uh, but he's now trying to sell this to state ratifying conventions. And in that process of selling it to state ratifying conventions, there is an absolute effort made that we are not going to touch your states. You know, this, this union is to strengthen the union, but to keep state governments with their concurrent powers. That's not to say that, uh, again, that they they might have wanted more. James Madison writing to George Washington, April 1787, before the, the convention in Philadelphia happens. Over and above this positive power, negative in all cases whatsoever on the legislative acts of the states, as heretofore exercised by a kingly prerogative, appears to me to be absolutely necessary and to be the least possible encroachment on the state jurisdictions. Without this defensive power, every positive power that can be given on paper will be evaded and defeated. The states will continue to invade the national jurisdiction, to violate treaties and the law of nations, and to harass each other with rival and spiteful measures. Yeah, Madison in the early going here is concerned about states. He's particularly concerned about the actions of Rhode Island, where a populist majority is there and they're doing things like stay laws, where in other words, they're, they're in, in effect voiding loans by banks and creating all kinds of, uh, in Madison's view, difficult economic conditions as a result of that. And he wants to introduce a veto power uh, over from the federal government of the states. He does not get that. That is not part of the Constitution. That structure, as it's in place, leads to some interesting things that I don't think we always think about. States can have not only different uh, methods of police enforcement, which they do, different things might be legal in one state, legal in another. We see that, for instance, with uh, medical marijuana laws are probably the most common thing. We saw that during the COVID crisis where in one state, uh, being on the roads might be a problem in another state completely open at different points in 2020. I want to give example of a couple of states that have not just different laws in their history, but different philosophies. You take the state of Iowa, and it has, from its foundings, and Iowa becomes a state December 1846, from its founding, its first constitutional documents, it declares every person free and equal. This leads to some interesting things. So in Iowa, and certainly not in the rest of the nation, as early as 1851, interracial marriage is legal. In 1869, the Iowa Supreme Court rules that any woman may not be denied the right to practice law in Iowa. Different philosophies than a federal government or other states may have. My own state of New Jersey has some interesting things in its constitution, which the most recent one is 1947, so right after World War II. Persons in private employment shall have the right to organize and bargain collectively. Those in public employment can organize and present their grievances. doesn't give them the right necessarily to bargain collectively, although they, they are doing that in New Jersey at the current time. 
It's not a constitutional right. So in the Constitution, you have a right to form a union. That's not something in the federal Constitution. It bans gambling without control of the legislature. But it has something else. The legislature, the Constitution says, shall provide a thorough and efficient system of free public schools. This constitutional language written in 1947 was later used in 1970 by the NAACP and a group of school systems that were in urban areas underfunded, saying that the use of property taxes alone to fund schools is meaning that the legislature isn't living up to that responsibility in the Constitution. The court agrees. And we have something called the Abbott decision in New Jersey, which means that state funds, extra state funding, has to go to a group of school systems that are identified by the court. There have been 21 Abbott court cases since then. Uh, Let's go to Missouri. So Missouri, for instance, you have a right to farm. The right to farm is forever guaranteed duly authorized powers as needed over property for the purpose of ranching and farming. That's been clarified by recent decisions that doesn't stop you from having to live up to certain food ordinances if you're serving food, and it does not, as a of a 2020 decision by the Missouri State Supreme Court, include medical marijuana, where people were doing that and then saying, hey, I have farming rights. But do you have the right to farm? In Missouri, I don't necessarily, I don't have that under the federal constitution and I don't have that, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, in terms of the second amendment and the gun debate. So Missouri, a couple of things here has the, the right to bear arms shall not be questioned. And that's interesting language, right? That's very different from infringed or even abridged. And I talked about those words in the, in the, uh, it also gives a positive instruction to the state of Missouri to defend those rights and says that if the state government is not defending those rights, it's failing in its duties, but it shall not be questioned the right to bear arms. However, there's also something interesting in the constitutional language and it's, Because the federal constitution has so few words, and some of these state constitutions go in more detail, you can see they might be windows on on various interpretations. I'll read what I'm talking about here. So the Missouri constitution says that the right is typical, describing something typical to the normal function of arms in quotes. And it lists items such as the defense of home, the defense of person, family, property, and when lawfully summoned in aid of the civil power. But it's always in the area of adding more rights instead of taking away rights. That's impossible. This is an incredible period, I think, where the limits of federal and state power are being tested. That's why I think it's important to talk about these things. And the the origins of it are you know really go to the to the Shays rebellion the enactment of the constitution the original revolution all of these things and you have people arguing i've seen at least on the internet where people can argue anything especially cora the extreme case that states are nations and they shouldn't be questioned at all and that the founders would have understood states as nations to me I read a revolution conducted by a union, by a confederation, conducted in every way, a a joint effort. 
that Congress ran the war, that Congress was George Washington's employer. When it comes to form states, the instruction to form states comes from the Continental Congress. Okay, so the state of New Jersey forms one day after the Continental Congress in 1776 says you need to form states. Other states had already formed in different ways. Maryland is a convention government. South Carolina declares that the king has vacated his enforcement here. Therefore, we must assume it. It's not quite the formation of a state immediately. So there's different timing of that. But the instruction for the various colonies, committees within these colonies to form states comes from the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, the Confederation Congress. So there's some interesting things happening at the sale of some things you may not like, some things you may like. You'll see what Texas, for instance, is doing around uh, abortion, allowing anyone in the state to engage in a civil lawsuit if someone has an abortion. Um, you saw Gavin Newsom in California doing a similar thing with guns that anyone can sue. And it just mirrored Texas's law to the point that it said the minute Texas changes its law on abortion, California's law on guns will be void. But in terms of laws around abortion, that one that we're talking about that Abbott did in Texas and the legislature did, that might get thrown out. We'll see what happens with that. What is part of the concurrent powers that exist is Texas's ability absent a federal right as interpreted by SCOTUS to ban abortions in the state. The Supreme Court has really functioned like a Congress here. It really has. The votes changed and it shifted its opinion. That change has been coming for some time. Really, the 1992 Casey decision was a bit of a surprise. It was almost overturned there. But the whole reason this is going on, and I think this is getting a little bit of uh, coverage now, but not talked about as much, is that there's no federal statute. Uh, it, it's not passable with the current politics, at least. That might change if voters are heard. We'll see. That's on one side, the abortion issue. You also, you get into things like climate change, and you're starting to see Gavin Newsom, California, making arrangements with China uh, on climate change because the federal government hasn't acted quick enough. And they see a state interest there. And they're becoming one of the leaders. Joe Biden taps Newsom to appear with the federal government representatives going to China to announce a climate change agreement. On the other hand, West Virginia is able to act around EPA laws because of a decision by the current Supreme Court. That's not directly related to state and federal power, it's more related to executive versus legislative power. Because the minute the Congress was to change a law, I mean, if you read uh, Gorsuch's decision, concurrent decision in uh, in West Virginia versus EPA, when Congress seems slow to solve problems, it may be only natural that those in the executive branch might seek to take matters in their own hands. But the Constitution does not authorize agencies to use pen and phone regulations as substitutes for laws passed by the people's representatives. In our republic, it is the peculiar province of the legislature to provide prescribed general rules for the government of society, according to Fletcher v. Peck. Um, because today's decision helps safeguard that foundational constitutional promise, I am pleased to concur. Okay, so, you know, reading that logic, if Congress were today pass a law that gave the EPA directly that authority 
then that would be a different story. So that's not exactly a federal state decision, but it does play into it, at least in it's an effect. But all of these things that we're discussing where federal state power has become so important, even to the point of states starting to, you know, not directly conduct foreign policy, but take actions that will have an effect on the overall way America presents itself to the world. This from an issue of Foreign Affairs magazine, an article by Bednar and Quellar. Despite the growing role in domestic policy, states may appear to have little sway in foreign affairs, where nation-to-nation diplomacy and hard power reign supreme. But in many regions of the world, and on a host of issues, such as aviation, ocean management, climate change, and refugee settlement, those traditional tools now compete with other forms of influence. As the scholar Anne-Marie Slaughter has argued, networks of institution and individuals Scholars and scientists, government officials, business executives have long been sharing ideas and coordinating strategies across borders. Technology policy, these networks have allowed smaller countries to have global influence. Estonia, for example, has played a leading role in counter-disinformation. South Korea has been pioneering force in public-private partnerships for online authentication. When bolstered by state government's power to develop policy experiments, Cross-border exchanges can drive policy innovations, including in areas such as artificial intelligence, biomedicine, blockchain, and renewable energy that are becoming more difficult to achieve at the federal level. 2014, California began a cap-and-trade agreement with Quebec. 2022, Massachusetts Biotechnology Council launched a partnership with a European Union health industry trade body to promote cross-border biotechnology research. Five states, Alaska, Colorado, Colorado, Hawaii, Montana, and Vermont, passed resolutions questioning the Patriot Act's constitutionality and limiting its application in their borders. In the last decade, with respect to immigration policy, 11 states and hundreds of cities and counties declared themselves to be sanctuaries. So you're seeing all kinds of uh, rules. A good, good article there in um, Foreign Affairs The fractured superpower federalism is remaking U.S. democracy and foreign policy in the September-October issue of Foreign Affairs. Those on the left or left-of-center of things, because of the poison rhetoric of states' rights connected to anti-civil rights, do not consider some of the positives of having concurrent government and having states as experimentation. You know, Brandeis was, I mean, these are generalizations, but... Brandeis was a federalist, but part of the reason he was a federalist is he was also a progressive-minded jurist. But we forget that part of the history because of senators, you know, Strom Thurmond doing a 48-hour filibuster and talking about state rights. Keep the discussion of state powers. You have some interesting things that can happen and some protections of liberties that can occur that, um, you know, the founders were very aware of and we may have moved away from over time. And again, it all starts really in the woods of Pennsylvania is where a lot of this first battle gets fought. And, you know, not just in the woods, but also in the city of Philadelphia where the capital was and where, um, yeah, and, and what at the time was concurrently Pennsylvania's state capital as well. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It starts as the result of a clever Treasury Secretary trying to institute a way to establish stability for the new country. 1794, the interior of the United States would be ablaze with literal fire and political tumult. And it's described in a book by William Hoagland, who has some good books on the Revolutionary Era, mostly involving conflict. In January of 1790, Congress came back to New York, and Hamilton filed his proposed finance plan, the Report on Public Credit. Multiple tables, charts, schedules, and row after figures. But the report in its totality urged a three-part program, paying interest on, rather than paying off or voiding, the federal domestic debt, hugely expanding the debt by absorbing in all of the debts of the United States occurs during the revolution and raising revenues for interest payments on the expanded debt by adding to the custom laws new duties on imported wine and spirits and imposing an excise on domestically distilled spirits. What would this do? It would greatly strengthen the federal government, this assumption of debt. It wasn't well understood in Congress, but there were various maneuvers. For instance, the moving of the state capital from New York, where it was now, to Philadelphia, which it was to be for 10 years, and then to what at this point in 1790 was merely an idea of a capital on the Potomac. But many people were interested, including Jefferson and Madison, sort of, maneuvered on this assumption bill. But why is it important to assume the debts? Well, one is that there's an awful lot of debts to pay for the nation to take and be taken seriously among the nations of the world, and all of these individual states have their own debts. But the other is to increase the importance of the federal government because if there's competing bonds being floated out there, the federal government bonds and then the state bonds, that's going to be a lot of choices for debt buyers bond buyers to have. Why not consolidate them all? It also will mean that in all the states of the union, there will be interest in the federal government because their debt is tied up in it. And what's the weapon of the federal government per the Constitution to raise revenue? It's twofold. You can raise revenue from customs duties and also from internal excise taxes. All throughout the interior of the country, 
Farmers that farm grain are getting extra money and sort of bartering and selling the additional whiskey that they're able to make from that grain. For many households, this is all they have in terms of actual income. Um, grain prices go up and down. Whiskey remains a source of income in the country. And you'll see this in Virginia. You'll see this in Kentucky, North Carolina, and the backwoods area of Pennsylvania. It's known that there should be a federal tax on the sale of uh, alcohol. And even in these interior areas, there's usually not too much of a problem getting people to, say, pay their property taxes due to the county or fees due locally. And they have no objection to, say, import taxes that they're paying indirectly. But when it comes to internal, you know, distilled whiskey that's made from their own grain product and then sold, that they didn't think should be taxed by some government in Philadelphia. And that caused a lot of problems. The assumption bill with that tax passes the House and Senate. In December, Hamilton reports to Congress the unsurprising fact that the federal government, in taking on a legal obligation to fund a debt, had run up a deficit of $830,000. Fortunately, the new import duties and excise on spirits, the revenue bill proposed in the report, would raise $975,000, more than enough to cover the deficit. Americans drank alcoholic beverages in huge quantities. Distilling went on in home stillhouses, at community stills, and in large-scale commercial operations. The Philadelphia elite, downing alcohol with most meals between them, favored imported wines, but also liked French brandy, a whiskey made from wine. Rum, cane whiskey imported from the Caribbean, or distilled domestically from imported molasses, was for a time the country's favorite drink, and army rations routinely included rum until grain whiskey came into vogue early in the 18th century with the influx of Scots-Irish settlers who brought expertise in domestic distilling. By the time of the Revolution, domestic whiskey was gaining popularity, and soon it would place rum as the country's drink. Whiskey was consumed by men, women, and children at all times of the day in every sort of gathering, muster, church, election, work, dance, and fight. Often, a community distiller kept pot stills going throughout the harvest, and farmer brought in their grain and took away the whiskey, paying the distiller in a portion of the product. The Philadelphia College of Physicians had correctly identified domestic whiskey as the cheap drink of the laboring classes. But people in other classes enjoyed whiskey, too. And by the 1790s, even as the West was making itself the home of radical agitation and defiant independence, the best whiskey was known to come from there, especially from the forks of the Ohio, whose Monongahela rye possessed consistent strength and purity. Its whiskey was known by name in Philadelphia and in New Orleans. Yet while they were drinking their whiskey, Easterners lampooned the people of the Western Mountains as habitual drunks. It was popularity in the East that made whiskey unusual among the products of small and subsistence farmers for being a cash crop with eager markets both within the regions that produced it where a gallon might sell for 25 cents. It wasn't only in Pennsylvania where there was resistance to paying whiskey excise taxes, but in Pennsylvania it was particularly abhorrent because it was so close to the capital. By 1794, the city of Pittsburgh forged out of Fork 
in the Monongahela River, and a few battles with the French and Indian tribes aligned against British North America, always sort of a frontier town, was growing and seen by the locals now as a Sodom, the symbol of decadence. It's where the merchants lived. Said one of the many farmers who had joined in rebellion in the area, Sodom was burnt from fire from heaven. This Sodom should be burnt from fire from earth. Plus, there were riches there in the stores and in the houses. There were also guns and ammunition, which had many of the poorer farmers in the area dreaming about it. I have a hat now, a rebel said, but I expect to get a better one. What caused all this? It was a federal excise tax on whiskey. And it mattered more than almost everything. As a history of Pittsburgh and the Whiskey Rebellion describes, opposition to the excise enforcement focused the frustrations of impoverished frontier life. But once unleashed, the anger of Whiskey Rebels transcended just the excise tax and persons and properly most directly associated with the hated tax. As rebels met on a field in the country and mustered, a horseman raced through the streets of Pittsburgh, brandishing a tomahawk and shouting out a warning. This is not all I want. It is not the excise law only that must go down. Your district and associate justice must go down. Your high offices and salaries must go down. I am but beginning yet. He shouted this warning to make it clear, and perhaps now should be clear to us in looking at the history as well, that it was more than just the excise tax. The rebels would end up burning the federal tax collector's house and roughing up many of the collectors. Um, this was the signal that was sent to the federal government in Philadelphia that something was greatly wrong. But Miller's Owners of large tracts of lands in the Pittsburgh area, shopkeepers, would be assaulted in property in person. Most of the victims of the rebels, over half of them, had nothing to do with Hamilton's tax whatsoever. Pittsburgh is concerned. They call for a town meeting, and they decide to banish those who had cooperated with the tax collectors, including a bunch whose letters had been intercepted. They're banished from the city of Pittsburgh. Now, that's an interesting thing, the banishing, and it went on. You know, you you often lived in a town at the behest of those who live there and allowed you to live there, you know, and you could be uh, banished. That was something that was done. Um, you know, few people may want to bring that back, but um, that was something that they did. So they took that step, but they did a little bit more. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily 
wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. They also sent a committee out to meet with the rebels to see what their grievances were and to show that they were concerned. And a group of Pittsburgh citizens actually go out to Braddock's Field, where the rebels are mustering, and parade, actually join them in a show of support. Um, nonetheless, women in the town of Pittsburgh were hiding their valuables, and people in stores were locking up and preparing. But the compliance of the town and the compliance of county officials and state officials in the back area of Pennsylvania, far from Philadelphia, would make it into a list of complaints that Hamilton's going to assemble about their behavior. Rebellion fomented in Pennsylvania over the whiskey tax that Hamilton passes. It also, we should be clear about this, is happening in Kentucky. They cannot enforce these excise laws in large numbers to get anywhere near the kind of number that Hamilton wants to pay off the debts. They also can't enforce it in Virginia, North Carolina, and other places. But particularly in Kentucky, they're going to give them a pass. It's too far away. And they're also very aware that Kentucky is on the edge of perhaps going to a Spanish or British rule if they push too far. But in Pittsburgh, they feel the need to do something. Randolph... um, And Washington and Hamilton discuss this. Hamilton wants to confront the rebels early on. Edmund Randolph, who's now Secretary of State, he had replaced Thomas Jefferson when he left office. They want to hold off. Now, we talked to Lindsay Travinsky uh, in her book about the cabinet. We talked on the main podcast there. And she makes a point of talking about, you know, what happens next. Um, that Knox and Hamilton really want to start pushing the enforcement. And as a point that uh, Trevinsky makes, some contemporaries, including Jefferson and many historians, have accused Knox of just blindly following Hamilton. But Trevinsky suggests that it's in line with Knox's views about authority, about the view of an active executive, about what had happened during the Revolution, and that order had to be restored. Edmund suggests, though, that they, uh, Edmund Randolph suggests that they try to negotiate. This is the policy that Washington sort of initially favors, that he puts together a committee, including a friend of his, George Ross, uh, who's very well known and can talk to these people 
one-on-one and try to get a sense of what they can do. Washington also convenes a meeting, not only of his cabinet, but also of Pennsylvania officers. Governor Thomas Mifflin um, is one of them, and Alexander Dallas, Pennsylvania's secretary. They're hoping for peace, um, but he's authorized at this point that he can summon an American militia. The federal government can summon this. This is under Congress's Militia Act of 1792. Congress is not in session right now. They won't be until the fall. So he can go to a federal judge and get approval and get that militia summoned. Mifflin and Dallas are outraged. This is a Pennsylvania problem. Why are you talking about a federal militia? The state judiciary can punish those who don't pay the tax. And they can punish anyone with the law and prosecute anyone who riots or causes a disturbance. Mifflin goes as far as to say, assembling a federal army and entering the the interior of Pennsylvania is as bad as anything that rioters have done. Hamilton is shocked during this meeting. Ignore riots. Ignore discipline. Maybe Pennsylvania doesn't want to enforce the law. But Mifflin is insistent. We haven't tried yet. You tried to collect the taxes, and you failed. We as the state of Pennsylvania haven't tried. So what you see in this is not only the conflicts over responding to a riot and rebellion, but also state and federal power in conflict. This meeting doesn't end it. Mifflin keeps writing letters to Washington's government in Pennsylvania, insisting that he and the Pennsylvania judiciary will handle the situation. Washington, as he was prone to do, had Hamilton respond, though he also realizes that Hamilton can write with a bit of a partisan edge. And so he has Edmund Randolph actually put his name on the letters and and also to edit Hamilton's letters. But he knows that Hamilton's knowledgeable about the excise situation. Chervinsky notes that this is an important check on what's going to happen in the future with the cabinet, that no one cabinet official responds to governors. The president under Washington's present directs how the response to governor, governors will be made how responses to the state authorities will be made. And that's usually whoever's department it involves, but he also can change it up a bit as he does here. Washington and Mifflin, the governor of Pennsylvania, did not get along. Mifflin wanted to replace Washington during the war with Horatio Gates. They also battled over delays with a new settlement that Mifflin wanted to start near Erie, Pennsylvania now. The state, it was totally in its purview to control the development of a new town. But battles and negotiations with Indians were to be under the federal government. They were treated as Indian nations. So he uh, has some troubles in the first settlement, wants to start again. Washington writes him a letter telling him, please stop trying to settle this new uh, area around Erie, Pennsylvania. Suspend for the present, he says. Mifflin listens, but then after a month, he says, well, I'm going to start again. I have people here who have investments in this land. We want to start building up there. And he even writes, can the advice of the executive suspend a positive law of Pennsylvania? In other words, I'm the governor. 
I'm responsible for carrying out the laws of the legislature of Pennsylvania. Who is the president to tell me to stop? So he writes that in his law. You know, it's kind of a 17th century, 18th century back off. I work for the Pennsylvania legislature. Now in 1794, Mifflin is writing letters, you know, excise laws, you know, are, are, are for us to enforce. You put the laws in place. People are misbehaving. State of Pennsylvania needs to enforce that. No, Hamilton, writing through Edmund Randolph, says excise laws must be enforced with federal help. Washington then makes a statement that says that state authority has failed. Federal efforts to collect taxes are being disrupted. And state officials are not helping. Mifflin disagrees vehemently with this statement and says he'd like to see the evidence. Washington dispatches Hamilton and says it is now a tax issue. He responds with eight pages, all of the offenses of various county and state officials that have done nothing to help collect it. He names 33 state and county officials and military leaders who opposed and disavowed the whiskey excise laws. Something else happens. September 10th, 1794, the federal government calls out the Pennsylvania militia. Now, this is a moment that's testing who's going to be in charge here. And as with so many things, voting occurs not just in a ballot box, but also with the feet and the musket. And this is going to be something that occurs during the revolution in Philadelphia when the famous uh, muster appears and causes the government of Pennsylvania to change. In this case, it's who's going to win out, Mifflin's kind of lax enforcement or the federal government. The Pennsylvania militia, egged on by several letters that Hamilton under a pen name has penned to the various newspapers about the violations of authority occurring, they turn out in great numbers. Mifflin's a politician. He sees it and he decides there'll be no further inst- um no further interference. He also knows he's up against Washington, and Washington is the most popular figure in Pennsylvania or anywhere up and down the American continent. He doesn't want a scrabble with him. In a September 12th letter, two, two days after the Pennsylvania muster, says that he'll cooperate. Well, the rest is literally history, right? Um, Washington meets the Virginia Maryland, and Pennsylvania militia at a point, and it really is a big morale boost for all the people that have come out to see the President of the United States leading them. Now, it's often said that he kind of led them into battle. That is true, and it's not true. Washington only follows this federal federalized militia to a point. He doesn't go all the way to Pittsburgh. Eventually, he goes back to Philadelphia, having kind of made his statement. But by the time that militia reaches uh, Pittsburgh, any leader of the rebellion has fled. There's eventually trials, and there's eventually um, pardons. But generally speaking, a big statement has been made by Federalists. A big statement has been made about federal supremacy of law. Um, 
a big statement has been made about, you know, who's in charge, the governor. I mean, when they're, when they're arguing their letters at one point, you know, Mifflin keeps saying like, show me the federal law that's being violated here, you know, and, and you know, there, there will be, of course, through time. And you've seen it recently with COVID and lockdowns, arguments between say Cuomo and Trump and things like that of arguments between states and federal governments and invoking of the 10th amendment and the like, um, you know, but you won't see this, this blatant interference in the federal government operating by a state, um, for some time. There is another note though, to make that generally excise taxes were still not well collected during this time. Uh, after the rebellion, it's not like everybody paid up. There's still a lot of resistance, it was just that the overall rebellion and the idea of overturning governments or invading Pittsburgh, uh, which would have been disastrous for a new nation, or the creation of a second military complex that might have sided or, you know, treated with Britain, probably not, France or Spain, maybe, um, were, was certainly a possibility. And that was to a degree shut down by Washington's performance in the Whiskey Rebellion. But to some degree, you know, the excise tax wasn't well enforced. And then when you get Jefferson as president, it's one of the first things on his docket. He removes the excise tax. So politically, you know, Washington and Hamilton's side doesn't win in the long term. But it does make for a good story and one that I think is enhanced by Chervinsky's telling of it and weaving it into that story of how Washington used his cabinet in different functions. And also a little bit of maybe Hamilton gets too much press in these stories. And maybe that's because who talks about you more than your opposition? And it's because of uh, Jefferson. Um, when I first wrote this up for recording, it was before some of the George Floyd uh, protests. And various, you know, social unrest that's occurred since then. So, you know, but it is interesting to see how well it applies. I mean, I do think that the Whiskey Rebellion was brought on by long-term grievances of the interior of the country about the coasts and about how they were treated even by people in their own areas and judges and the federal government was just one more thing above that. And so it was a protest of sorts. It did get out of hand. It did stray from its initial reasons. But you see in this an early American protest, it's always, you know, and I don't want to belittle anything by whenever you're comparing things to people that look so distant because it's 200 years in time that they're wearing trifled hats and the, and the like and looking different than we do. Um, doesn't mean that some of the reasons for acting aren't the same. Um, there you have it. I'm at Twitter at MyHist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Got scores of episodes on that site, hundreds of episodes on the Apple Podcast site. If you go to visit us on Apple Podcasts or any other service, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you do like the program, tell someone about it on your blog, tell about it on Twitter, give us a shout out. It really helps. I want to thank you for listening.